And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though you, they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. All right, thank you, Jason. I love how that song ended, uh, Make Your Glory Known. And so as we gather together, it's encouraging for me to know that many of us are gathering together not because we want some sort of fuzzy feeling, but that we truly want to draw in closer to the bigness of God and we want his glory uh, to be seen in our eyes, our spiritual eyes, and to be known, as Andy was talking about on the front end of the service, for us to know his glory in our hearts. Let's ask God, once again, to guide us through our passage this morning, and then we'll study it together. Lord, you have the words of life, and we're asking that through your word you would make your glory known. May we have a greater view of you, a strengthened faith in you after studying your word. As Hebrews 11 said, a faith, a trust in you and not in ourselves. And may our lives then look like lives that are surrendered, certainly not in defeat, but surrendered out of faith and out of that surrender, we're finding peace and we're finding joy because we've surrendered away from our sin and surrendered our lives to you. We pray that you would remove those, those weights that are attached to our lives, attached to our hearts. We ask that through your spirit, those chains would be broken heavy things in our lives, habits, pitfalls, snares that we, we feel trapped by or that hold on to us. So again, just please use your word in Jesus' name, amen. I think that as we get older in life, we would all admit that life began simple. And as we age, there is a complexity that comes with life, and with that complexity comes more challenges. So for example, I look back to my childhood, just outside of Richmond, Virginia, those hot days of summer, and life was simple. Jump on your bikes, meet up with your neighborhood friends, go to the tree fort, sharpened sticks against old cinder blocks that were out in the woods, and we had our make-believe play guns, and it was cowboys and Indians. Play some basketball, come home, sleep, next morning, do it all over again. It was me, my parents, and some friends, and life was simple. You get older, and life takes on more responsibilities. And with more responsibilities, 
And with more relationships comes more complexities. So you age into your teenage years, your young adult years, and you might pick up more friends, you might have a job, you might be in college, you have more responsibilities, you're beginning to take on work and maybe have to pay bills. You continue aging, and God might lead you into marriage, and now here's a unique relationship. And then here is a family tree out of that relationship, and then you're connected to another family, the in-laws. You're part of a church family like this, or a small group, and you have multiple people who are in your life. And not only that, but you're attached in some way to the world, so you pick up your phone, or you're on the internet, or some old school people might use the paper still. And you're, you're connected to what's going on in the world. There's this constant bombardment. Way back when, as a young boy or girl, it was get up in the morning, eat your cornflakes, ride your bike, a friend or two, go back to bed and do it all over again. But now life has become more complex. And it's like with all of these complexities or with all these additions in life, there are little flare-ups in life. This relationship over here, there's a skirmish that's going on. Or this responsibility at work is weighing down more heavily than you ever experienced as an eight-year-old just sharpening sticks. And so these things start to weigh down in your life, and you see and feel more discouragements. And what can happen throughout life is that as you feel the discouragements in your life, you can lose sight of, as Christians, the Lord, your strength, and you sense or feel as though I'm, I'm falling away because everything in life is like a big tsunami wave. It's, it's more complex, and oh, how I wish life was so simple again. I wish I could just get up in the morning, do cereal, a few small tasks, and go back to bed. But that's not how God has designed us. And each stage of life comes with more weights and more weights. And so I truly think that those of you who are the oldest in here, who have the biggest family tree, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, friends that go horizontally, health issues, you're seeing the world and you're seeing change that has happened over seven, eight decades, you are feeling the complexities of life in a greater and greater way. It doesn't get any easier, I guess, is what I'm saying. And where do we turn? In this passage, what we see is the complexities of life or what Jesus calls or what Jesus warns about and says, these are going to come into your life. You're going to face challenges, and out of those challenges, there's going to be failure. Out of that failure can come discouragement. And in this passage, what Mark is doing is he's presenting a contrast for us. He's showing the disciples whose life may have been simple a few years ago, but now because they've attached themselves to Jesus, there are much more complexities and there's many more burdens that they're facing. For all of the excitement that they've seen in Jesus's life, life is about ready to get very difficult because of this new relationship that they have with him. And what we'll see with this contrast is the failure of man 
And we look at ourselves in this chapter and we can see ourselves following Jesus and we see ourselves so many times saying, in my sin, I have failed over and over. Life is heavy. I'm aiming to follow Jesus, but it has swallowed me up like an avalanche, like a tsunami. And then in this passage, it's as though one man faces the avalanche and goes right through it. One man faces the tsunami wave, and he stands, and it splashes all over him. He feels the full weight of it all and doesn't capitulate, and he continues to go on. We see the faithfulness of Jesus. And so this morning, this is not a passage where we get to the end and we say, now here are three things, go and do this. This is like a portrait where we're seeing Jesus in verses 26 through 52, and we have to stand back and appreciate and see our Savior more clearly. In the end, we're encouraged because here's the man who has stood up underneath all of the complexities. He stood up underneath the avalanche. He stood up underneath the tsunami, and he remained faithful. And it's because of him that we have hope. So three points to the sermon, and I'll give them to you as we go through. First one is simply Jesus stricken, verses 26 to 31. Jesus stricken. After Jesus has just finished up his last supper, which we covered last week, the last supper with the disciples, Jesus takes them from that room and he walks outside of the city down, if you will, a little dip, a little valley. And at the base of that valley comes a mountain that springs up out of the earth. It's called the Mount of Olives. Now, this mountain, this hill, is not just mentioned here. It's mentioned throughout the Old Testament as an important place. It has significance to it in Old Testament prophecy. Zechariah chapter 14, verses 3, 4, and following. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. Down through the chapter now, verse 8. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. As you're reading through the Bible and you hear about the Mount of Olives, these disciples who would have known their Old Testament well and know that Jesus is a Messiah Savior probably can't help but think, we're going to the Mount of Olives tonight. The Messiah, the Christ, has come. And perhaps tonight will be the night where Zechariah 14 will be fulfilled, where Jesus as the Messiah King will now have all of the nations come to him. Rome will be defeated. But that's not what takes place in this paragraph. Jesus leads them to the Mount of Olives, and in verse 27, Jesus' first words to his disciples are this. You all will fall away. You all will fall away. It's not a very encouraging statement to hear from Jesus. This word fall away comes from a Greek word which sounds much like 
an English word that we get, scandalizo, scandalizane. They won't be creating a scandal. That is the disciples. The disciples aren't going to be creating a scandal. Instead, they're going to be scandaled. What's going to happen that night is going to be overwhelming for them. They're going to be caught up in the midst of something somewhat scandalous, and they're going to be swept away. They're going to fall away due to the the enormity of this scandal. Sometimes scandals are so overwhelming that people, they can't keep their feet on the ground. And they get swallowed up, they get hurt, And in this passage, Jesus is saying, you're going to be scandaled away. You're going to fall away. And the question is, what what could get to us tonight? What is it that would cause us to be scandaled? And Jesus continues on by quoting Zechariah 13. I just mentioned Zechariah 14, but Zechariah 13. Jesus quotes Zechariah 13, 7 here in verse 27. He says, for it is written... I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus is saying, I'm going to be struck. He's going to be attacked. Now, when some people are attacked, they fight back. And they come out looking like a victor and everybody wants to join their team. They draw in closer to them. But what's interesting here is that Jesus is not going to appear to be the victor tonight and into tomorrow. It will appear as though Jesus is defeated, and out of that appearance of defeat, the disciples are going to say of their Savior, where are you? I'm gone. I'm done. There's no hope here for me. So what's interesting, though, in this statement is we're told who's going to strike the shepherd. In verse 27, we see the first person pronoun, I will strike the shepherd, And the I that Jesus is talking about is God. God is going to bring a scandal in their lives. God is going to be the one who strikes Jesus. Isaiah 53, it's the same thoughts from this prophecy. Isaiah 53, verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, and here's the phrase, smitten by whom? Smitten by God and afflicted. Then in verse 10, it was the Lord's will to crush him, to throw him down hard, and to cause him to suffer. So God the Father is going to strike the Son. And this act of God, the striking of Jesus, is going to cause the disciples to be overwhelmed because Jesus is going to appear weak to them. Does Jesus ever appear weak to you? In life, when the circumstances are rising like that tsunami, coming at you like an avalanche, does it ever seem as though, God, your weakness seems to be pronounced here. Your strength is empty. It's not on display here. I'm getting swallowed up, and throughout the Psalms, you tell me that you're my rock and my fortress, but you feel like nothing right now. They're not going to feel safe. And they're going to fall away. But notice how Jesus follows up his statement about being stricken. Verse 29, there's a glimmer of hope. He says, after I am raised up. So here comes the glimmer of hope through the darkness. I will be raised up. He says, I will go before you to Galilee. Now there's a promise to hold on to. 
Jesus is going to be struck down. He's going to be risen, and he is going to go to Galilee, and we can read about that in the Gospels where he meets up with his disciples along the Sea of Galilee. Here's Peter in verse 29. He's heard these words, and Peter starts leaning into his own self-strength. He's the overreactor. Even though they all fall away, those guys over there, I'm going to separate myself from them. Who are they? They might fall away, but here's a first-person pronoun. I will not. They're weak, but I'm not. To which Jesus responds and says, Truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And Peter is still obstinate. And notice where he's focusing again. If I must die with you, I still will not deny you. Some youthful exuberance. Lack of perspective. Self-confidence here. And what's interesting, as you read the parallel passage in Luke's gospel, Luke 22, I believe it is, this same moment is where Jesus tells Peter, hey, Satan has demanded that he sift you like wheat. And Jesus follows up that statement, and he says, and when you have turned again, and he goes on to say how he will use him. I used to come to that passage and say to myself, Jesus prays for Peter. He won't allow Satan to sift him. But Jesus says something different. He says, when you have turned again, as though Satan is on a leash and he allows Satan to begin the sifting process, maybe a falling away, a scattering away process. But here's the mysterious thing. God uses Peter's falling away in such an amazing way that when you get to the book of Acts, Peter is transformed. And you come away from that realizing that God in his mysterious wisdom can take the falling away episodes that happen in our lives and he actually uses that for his honor and glory in our lives. As you look back in life, we all have our Peter moments. We all have looked to ourselves in our own self-strength and then we find ourselves defeated, denying Jesus, if you will. God moves us through life and then we turn again. We bring, he brings repentance into our life and then we find ourselves, hopefully, sometimes like Peter in the book of Acts where God has transformed our lives and used that moment back then to sanctify us. Peter is thinking he can live his Christian life in his own strength. But now think about Jesus for just a moment. What do you do if you know that somebody is going to let you down? What do you do if you know that somebody's going to abandon you? As a manager, how are you going to react if you've gotten word that that employee is going to walk out in two days? What do you do as a business owner if you know that a customer is going to default, abandon you? What do you do in a marriage if you get wind from a friend that your spouse has been messing around and is going to fall away? What do we do? We steer clear of those people. We, we, we put distance between us because we don't want the hurt to happen. They are the problem. We avoid problems. But here is Jesus 
predicting in Peter's life, you're going to be a problem. But don't worry, I'm not moving away from you. And folks, if you sit yourself, seat yourself with Peter and think about your life over the past decades and see yourself as the one who has walked away from Jesus, what a comfort to know that he could have said, okay, I'm done with the problem. He could have said that. He could have said, I'm finished, I'm moving away. And he said, nope, I'm not going to let that happen. I'm going to pray for you. And I'm going to make sure that you're not completely separated from me. He is stricken in our place. Here's our Savior who will go before us and make his way to the cross. And there the Father will will strike him ultimately. He predicts it here. We move on to verses 32 to 42. And here we see Jesus sorrowful. Jesus is still on the Mount of Olives. But in verse 32, it says that they went to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane means olive press. And so what we have here is some olive trees in this portion of this mountain. You've been to an apple orchard? This is probably an olive orchard. And he and the disciples are among the olive trees. And you can see what he says here in verse 32. He tells them, sit here while I pray. And then in verse 33, he takes with him three disciples. He takes Peter, James, and John. These are the same three disciples whom he took up on top of the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw him, if you will, on top of the world. They saw glory shining through his life. They were the ones that were able to see the extreme high. But now those same three disciples are with Jesus in this orchard being removed a little bit further. And they are going to see Jesus at the lowest of lows. Because it says now that he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. He's standing in front of them and they can see that his emotions are beginning to overflow. They can't be contained. The weight of this trial is coming upon him. And instead of quitting, instead of bowing out, he is still facing the avalanche. He's still facing the tsunami. And it says here that he is sorrowful. He's greatly distressed. And we can think about Psalm 42, the words of Psalm 42, where the text says that my soul is cast down within me. It's heavy. It's burdened down. It's been thrown down. There's no sign of real hope in this moment. And some of you can relate to this. Some of you have been at moments in your life where everything seems bleak in front of you and you can't control the tears that just well up. It seems like everything's dark. You've gone through agonizing times and the psalmist goes on to say, my tears were my food day and night and those people are crying out to me continually, where is your God? Where is your God? If you have a God, aren't you supposed to be lifted up out of this situation? Here's Jesus who is sorrowful. And notice what he does. He goes, says here, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch, 35. Going a little bit farther, he fell on the ground. And here he is in this olive grove, 
leaves, grass on the ground, and there's nothing more that he can do but just throw himself down on the ground and pray. And the disciples might be able to hear these words coming out of his mouth. If not, Mark has penned them for us so that we can hear them coming out of his mouth. He simply cries out and he says, Abba, Father. And that's that very personal term. Dad, Dad, I'm your son. You're my father right now. And notice what Jesus says about his father. All things are possible for you, Dad. I know that you are able. You've never let me down. You have all strength. And because you have all strength, here's what I'm pleading with you. Here's the request that I have for you, Dad. Dad, remove this cup from me. So what's this cup, the task that Jesus has to accomplish? Well, verse 27 talked about him being stricken by the Father. Now, we've all seen people face death. I should say most of us have seen people face death. I was with two elderly ladies this last week, separate women, separate places, and both of them, same day, just separate visits with them, both of them said this, I don't know why Jesus just doesn't take me home right now. They're at that stage of life where death would be a release from the burdens that they're carrying. And you've seen people in that situation Where death is not a fear to them, death is a release for them. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Specifically, the pain of the cross, the physical pain, is not what Jesus... He's talking about this cup. What is this cup? We see it throughout the Old Testament. Three passages that I'd just like to point you to. Isaiah 51, verse 17. Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs of the bull, the cup of staggering. Jeremiah 25, 15. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Revelation 14. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. What's this cup? This cup that Jesus is talking about is the cup of God's judgment. And Jesus' path to the cross includes not only the nails going through his hand, Not only the crown of thorns, but a spiritual judgment that he is going to have to gulp down. A spiritual torment as the full weight of God's wrath towards your sin, towards my sin, towards every believer's sin, will be Jesus' responsibility to drink up. So maybe you can think of it this way. Just a stone's throw over here is Lake Michigan. Its deepest point is 925 feet, according to Google this last week. Let's take that lake and elevate it 925 feet so this top surface is 925 feet in the air. 
And right across from our church, right over there, we see this huge dam that goes 925 feet up in the air. All around the lake is big earth. And here is this concrete dam that you look up and you can see it from anywhere in the Tri-Cities because it's so tall, 925 feet up in the air. And we're being dismissed after church. We're out in the parking lot. It's a sunny day. It's 75 degrees. And we're out in the parking lot and we're just enjoying one another. And we hear this loud explosion over here. And everybody's head whips over to the right And up into the sky on this dam, we see this huge crack forming down the middle of this dam. And water starts bursting out like fountains. And then boulders start exploding out of that huge dam. And we know that it's going to give. And we're looking at it and saying, in a second or two, all of that water is going to come and sweep us away. And so we see it just explode. There goes the dam And you hear the thunderous, you feel the wind whipping at you because of all that water pushing air. And you know you have a second left. But then a second explosion happens. A huge hole in the ground opens up right in front of us. And all of that water that is coming out of that 925 foot lake above us, gushing towards us, now just drops right down into the hole. And it gushes and pours down there for hours. And you see and feel all of this taking place. Perhaps it takes days. And the whole lake drains out to the last drop and gets swallowed up in the hole. That's God's wrath towards sin. And here is Jesus who is going before us saying, I have to drink it all. I have to absorb it all. This is the will of the Father. His wrath towards our sin is there. And the only way that his people can be saved is if someone will bear it upon himself. And so here is Jesus saying, please remove this cup from me. But then notice what he says to his dad. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Normally, we would say, hey, he does the crime, he pays the time. He made his bed, he's got to sleep in it. And here is Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, the Christ, the Son of God, going in front of us and saying, okay, Father, they did the crime, I'll drink the cup. That's the strength that Jesus goes into the garden with. That's the weight that Jesus feels as he's in the garden that way. That's the sorrow that he has, Jesus being sorrowful unto death. So these familiar words, man of sorrows, what a name. For the son of God who came, and here it is, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a savior. That night, Bearing shame and scoffing, how rude. In my place, condemned he stood. But sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, 
what a savior. Can you see Jesus now going through the garden, feeling the weight, the enormity of God's wrath, and saying, Father, is there another way? But not my will. Yours be done. He's gone off and prayed. Verse 37 and following says, He came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, why are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Could you not stay alert? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh, it is weak. Again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words, the same words of remove this cup, yet not what I will, but you will. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Came to them a third time, verse 41. Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? What's going on here? I think what Mark is doing in this section is again showing us the contrast of dedication. How dedicated are the disciples to Jesus right now? What's overwhelming them? Sleep, tiredness, fatigue. And here's Jesus who is deliberate in going forward. He's going to persevere all the way to the end. Verse 41, it is enough, the hour has come, he tells his disciples. Well, what hour is that? It's the hour of his betrayal and his judgment. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, in the darkness of night, see, my betrayer is at hand. And in this moment, he can see the torches that the crowd is carrying. He can see maybe the glint of light off armor, probably hearing the voices and footsteps. And the statement, let us be going, my betrayer is at hand, is not a statement of, hey, let's run away. It's Jesus saying, okay, let's go. This is what we have to go to. I'm going to move towards this group. Now, if you want some interesting reading, Read John 18 this afternoon. There's something very interesting that takes place when Jesus comes up and meets this band, this crowd of soldiers, this mob. I'll leave you to do that this afternoon. Here's Jesus, sorrowful, yet moving forward in obedience to the Father. Verses 43 to 52. Point number three, we fall away. As they're standing there in the dark of night, Judas and a crowd step onto the scene. We see that the crowd is characterized as a crowd that's carrying swords and clubs that come from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. This is another name for the Sanhedrin, or this is what makes up the Sanhedrin. And if you look at John's gospel, just to fill in some of the blanks here, it's possible that there are 600 soldiers that have come out. And the Romans want to keep the peace. This is during the time of Passover, like we've been talking about. The last thing they need is an uprising, so they come out under the cover of night. They come out with 600 soldiers. Surely 600 soldiers should be able to take care of 12, 11 men. Judas is not with them. Judas is with the mob, and he has given them a sign. It's dark. They won't really be able to recognize who this new Jesus guy is, but Judas will. And Judas is saying, it's the man whom I'm going to kiss. So in the darkness of night, Judas can 
see the silhouette of Jesus. Perhaps a torch is near his face, such a way where he can catch half of his facial features. And Judas takes this band of soldiers. He walks up to Jesus, and the text says that he comes up to him, and he says, Rabbi, with loud enough voice for everyone to hear, and then the text says he gives, them the, he gives him the cultural kiss. Now, according to Greek commentaries, the Greek language here makes it possible that Judas did this in a way that took time, possibly pausing and drawing out the moment. So it could be this, where he goes up to Jesus, calls him rabbi, puts his hands on his shoulders, and you know the kiss, kiss that goes on each side, normally they back away. He might be coming up to him and putting his face on the side of Jesus and just pausing there. And everything inside of us, knowing what Jesus knows, and knowing now having read Mark, we're standing here watching this and say, how low can Judas go? How gross can you get at this point to fake some sort of introduction here? And Jesus easily could have done this number to him. Get off me. Stay away from me. And yet he doesn't. Why? Because this is the cup that he has to drink. Jesus responds to the whole situation. Oh, I'm sorry. Early, they, they seize him. In verse 45, verse 46, I'm sorry, they lay hands on him and seize him. Somebody draws a sword, one of the disciples, and cuts off the ear of the servant. John's gospel tells us that this is Peter, a little scuffle happens, and Jesus puts it to rest. Then verse 48, Jesus says to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Is that who I am? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me there. So this is, this is clearly a setup. They could have come in if he was a robber in the temple, arrested him there, but they didn't. Instead, he says, but let the scriptures be fulfilled right now. And what scripture is he talking about? Isaiah 53, verse 12. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He's seen as a criminal right now. So the soldiers are there. Jesus is arrested. And notice what happens at the end of this little paragraph in our ESV. It says, verse 50, and they all, that's us, we see what's going on. We see Jesus appearing to be defeated, and we all leave and flee. Verses 51 and 52, strange couple of verses here. A young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they, that is the soldiers, they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. He kind of wriggles out of their grasp and runs away naked. And he's talking with a guy beforehand. Okay, Carl, I'm going to out you right now. He's talking with Carl. What's going on with this? Two thoughts. Number one is, this could very well be Mark. Mark the author here. And he might be confessing that he was the unnamed man who ran away in shame that night. But by actually including it in his gospel here, he's saying, yes, that was me running away from Jesus in shame, but now I'm pouring out my life for Christ as I write his biography. 
Like, just the fact that he's writing this about Jesus shows a change of heart. Could be one explanation. Second explanation is that the disciples and Jesus are in a garden right now. And there's this theme of nakedness, which takes us all the way back to the first garden. And what did man do after his sin when God approaches him? He runs and flees and hides himself. And so there is this tendency, whether it's we're in Mark's shoes or whether we're in Adam and Eve's shoes, we sin and we, we run away. We're, we're distancing ourselves from God. And that's how this section ends. This running away from Jesus. Here's him remaining faithful. He's going to the cross. He's going to drink from the cup. And there we are running away in shame. What's ironic is that everything in this book leading up to this point, everything that we've seen about Jesus, has been a reason for his followers to stay close to him. He's defeated diseases. He's defeated death. We saw him raising up Jairus' daughter. We've seen him beat back demons. This is Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, from chapter 1, verse 1. But now, as he moves forward in this last segment of his earthly life, his followers now are seeing him seized, and in seeing him seized, they're losing hope. They're falling away. If your heart and life is characterized like someone who has fled from Jesus, you need to know that Jesus is not fleeing from you. Jesus is going to remain. He's going to go forward from you. You might look at your life and say, I'm such a screw-up. I've got all the marks of those disciples who have lost faith and who have run away from Jesus. And Jesus could have said, yeah, see you later, I'm done. But as 2 Timothy 2 verse 13 says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. And he welcomes the disciples back, as we'll see in a few weeks, to himself. And he welcomes you back to himself. Over and over again, he welcomes you back. Why is it? He's gone to the garden. He's accepted the will of God for his death. He knows the band of soldiers will be there. He doesn't run. He doesn't flee. He's going to drink the cup of God's wrath. He will not fail. What we see is Jesus' faithfulness on behalf of us. Jesus' faithfulness on behalf of failures. A wonderful Savior who offers deliverance. He's going to continue on with salvation. He's going to meet our greatest need. And the question is now, will you see him pressing on all the way to the cross for you? Will you see him as the Christ, the Son of God, who is going to the cross to absorb God's wrath, providing salvation for us who fall? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for going forward. And we thank you this morning for absorbing the wrath that we deserve. We have no other hope except you. And so we believe. We just believe that you are our Savior. We confess our sins. We confess our perpetual sins. We fall away 
quite regularly and by all standards against your law we are failures we are sinners but thank you for being a savior who welcomes us back and who uses us in spite of that and loves us in spite of that so we're thankful today we're thankful today for you I pray that you'd help us as a church to see you as more and more centric, central to our lives. I pray that you'd guard us from abandoning you and walking away. Please encourage us with who you are and what you've done. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.